Hey listeners, listen here. This episode is twice as long as our usual episodes, but it's probably four times as important as our usual episodes, so you might want to give it a listen anyway. Enjoy! On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games. Hello and welcome to On the Shadows of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the gamers who game them. My name is Eran Aviram. My name is Uri Lifshitz. Yo! And today we have a guest. Guest, please introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Avner Shachar Kashtan. I am a long-time role-player, occasional DM, but mostly a player, and a fan of this show. Oh, thank you. And Avner helped us create... Probably one of the most important episodes we've ever done in our original Hebrew edition. And now we've decided to call him again, to do it again, this time in English, because we really think this is, might be one of the most important things, well, personally, as a player at GM, that I've ever heard, the topic of player motivations. Why we come to the table and play, and why we should care about these motivations. It's such a fundamental part of enjoyment, knowing what you enjoy, that we really should discuss it. So, Avner, why are you qualified to discuss this? A few years back, I was uh, working with a friend, a co-worker, in an office that was above a pool hall. And we would go down occasionally to play pool. And this friend was much, much, much better than me at playing pool. And yet, I consistently had more fun than he did. Uh, I had more fun... Because he was a good player. He uh, studied the game. He watched games on television. He practiced. And it was very important to him to win. I was not a good player. I played very uh, chaotically. I liked the sound of balls hitting each other. And I was good enough to win, you know, 30% of the time. For me, 30% of the time was just fine to give me everything I wanted from the game. For him, losing 30% of the time was terrible. <laughs> I had that story in the back of my mind for a couple of years, and then uh, a few years ago, uh, I was giving a talk in a local science fiction and role-playing convention, and it melded together with the things I wanted to say when I understood that the same thing happens around the gaming table. When people come to the gaming table, whether they enjoy themselves or not, it has a lot to do with what they want to find around the gaming table, and it's not always the same thing. And the same people can sit around the same table and have the same game and come out with extremely different experiences because they were not looking for the same thing. Even though, theoretically, they were all looking for a role-playing game, a D even more specifically, a dungeon-crawling D&D game, two people can come to the same game with different expectations, different motivations, and have different experiences. I think there's even a step further... And that is the realization that you might come one day to a game wanting this and that, and another day you'll come and you want that and this. And your own motivations might change between sessions, and you should be aware of that as well. Very true. I played a lot of Arth Magica over the years. Arth Magica, if anyone not familiar, is a fantastic role-playing game uh, published by Atlas Games. In medieval Europe, you play wizards in medieval Europe. 
And the interesting thing about this game, which has been in print since the late 80s and has five editions, is what is they call a troop-style role-playing game, meaning that there is usually a primary storyteller, primary uh, game master, but it might change between stories. And everyone has more than one character. Every player has his main character, the wizard that he's playing, but also a secondary character, might be a knight or a, a helper or some other relatively major character. And also there are minor characters, grogs, guards, common soldiers, and so forth, which might be a player's character, they might be like a pool of characters that other players can take, and different adventures might involve different combinations of characters. So one day you're playing your wizard, you're the main character of the story that's being told, you're leading the, the, the charge against whatever, or looking for ancient artifacts, and the other day, another day, another session, you're just playing the guard, you're playing what is usually either a small role or a comic relief or something that's not as central to the plot. And playing a lot of Ars Magica helps you realize that you know you can have very different experiences in the game. You can come because you want to be part of the story or you can come because you just want to have some fun and do the comic relief. And that may change from session to session. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with other theories about role-playing games and game motivation in general. We had a few years back the GNS theory, which stands for Gamism, Narrativism, and Simulation, which is one way of trying to analyze our gaming session and what we enjoy of those sessions. Uh, During this episode, we will not be comparing what we talk about here to any other theories. This is not a comparative episode. This episode has the aim of giving you a brand new tool, or to be more precise, a a list of motivations. Some of them I'm sure you are aware of, some of them will be totally new to you, and hopefully what we aim for is while you're listening to this episode, you'll suddenly say something like, oh yeah, I I enjoy that aspect of the game, or wow, that is a huge turnoff for me, and now I have a name for that, so I could tell people, listen, don't do that, it's a big turnoff for me. Avner, let us start with a short historic overview. Yes. How did we come to this motivation thing? Because we didn't start with this. No, after Uri says we will not be comparing things, let us compare some things now. Uh, growing up as a role player in the 90s, uh, there was a division that was uh, everywhere, that everyone seem to know between different kinds of role players, but it took me a while to find where they were actually defined. And this was the division of players between power gamers and role players and war gamers and storytellers. It was something that was in the uh, culture when I started the role playing and I had no idea where it actually came from. And eventually I found that it, it can be traced back to an article by Glenn Blackow called Aspects of Adventure Gaming from 1980, very early in the hobby's uh, history. Uh, and I'm uh, sure Iran, uh, Iran will provide a link in the show notes. Basically, this article tries to catalog different styles of play or different types of gamers. Uh, we know the names, we know the stereotypes. Power gamers like to, ha- to have strong characters that can beat everything. Role players like to you know, deeply play their role and express themselves dramatically. Uh, war gamers like the tactical aspect of the game. And storytellers like to tell stories. These are very rough stereotypes, and they're usually contrasted. They're saying, you know, power gamers and role players can never play together because they want different things from the game. But it was a good, primitive, rough division of styles of play 
20 years or so passed, and this categorization got a bit more fine-grained. In 2001, Robin D. Laws, who is a fantastic uh, uh, game designer uh, and has a great role-playing podcast as well, if you want. Yep. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. We'll give a link to that as well in the show notes. Wrote a book of tips for uh, Game Masters uh, where he took Blacko's original model and expanded it a bit. I still think that he, he missed a couple of points there that we can, from our perspective, see where he missed. But I think he, the, the, the additions he made to this categorization are very important to, the, to where we're going. He added three kinds of players. The specialist, the butt kicker, and the casual player. <laughs> Yes. And the reason I think they're important is because they're no, no longer rough categories of gaming style, you know, power gamers and, and role players, but they approach what we uh, talked about and what we talked about earlier about motivations, about why we come to the table. A casual player comes to the table because he wants to have fun with his friends and this is what his friends are doing. A butt kicker wants something to, 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 to vent is, is, annoyance at his boss somewhere so he goes out and you know kills goblins in dungeons now it's important to say that the butt kicker is not the same as the war gamer because it sounds like they're the same thing they want to fight they want to have combats but i think the war gamer actually wants to have interesting tactical decisions and use their strength in interesting ways while the butt kicker just wants to kick something, maybe like rolling a lot of dice and dealing a lot of damage, and as you said, venting frustration. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a it's a complete um, error to to make a comparison between the war gamer and the butt kicker because we are talking about different things. This is type of players, and this is the type of player motivation. Exactly. This is why we're we're, we're approaching what we're actually here to talk about this uh, episode. I mean, the butt kicker would probably have been a subset of the power gamer before this categorization. As uh, as our hobby uh, matures, we 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 find more more categorizations, finer grained categorizations of what we do and why we do what we do. Uh, and then, as I was reading for that lecture uh, in 2015, I fell down the rabbit hole <laughs> and came back to 1958. <laughs> slightly before the first uh, role-playing games, and the French sociologist named uh, Roger Caillois, I think that's how you pronounce his name, he wrote a book in 1958, which was translated to English in 1961, called Man, Play, and Games, uh, which is a, a, an academic sociological text about why people play games and how they play games. I did not read the whole book. I read some of it. It was fascinating because... It had absolutely nothing to do with role-playing games at first, but then you can see how the models he built there can be applied to role-playing games. Keiwa defined four approaches to games, four things that we get from a game, reasons we approach a game and what we can get from it, and what causes enjoyment from that game. Uh, since this is an academic text, we're, we're dropping down to uh, Greek and Latin. <laughs> we'll get a lot of that uh, uh, later on and four categories described are agon or agon which is uh, the enjoyment of defeating a rival alia or luck which is the enjoyment in well winning a, a roll of a die or a flip of a coin the enjoyment of luck uh, mimesis which is pretending 
it's a game where you enjoy pretending to be something else. We think, you know, role-playing, this is what we do, but the original texts talk about things like children pretending to be animals and, you know, roaring like a lion. This is the, hmm. the form of play he referred to. And Elinx, which is the enjoyment in confusing your senses and losing yourself in play. Like uh, uh, the actual physical adrenaline and the running around and the, 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 the physical aspect of the game. Which is usually something that we might get in a LARP, in a live action roleplay, but not so much around the table. Not too much, no. Yeah, but, but the others seem... I mean, he was talking about games in general, so of yeah. course we, we, we will need to get more refined later on, but, but it's a good basis, I think, because this is the sort of thing that whenever you approach a game, you might place yourself in one of these four categories and say, yes, this is what I am looking forward when I sit down to play Monopoly. I want Agon. I want to defeat the others, for example. I want the Alea. I want to roll the dice and get the doubles and etc., etc. And And we all can see the echo of that in many, many things. The question is, what's the thing which you most enjoy? The, the Alea is not just about... Uh, the fact that the game revolves around luck, it's the fact that before you roll your die, you savor that moment. That's, that's the moment that, okay, everything hinges on this roll. This is an awesome feeling, and that's what I want to get. I want to get that feeling. Yeah. I think it's interesting that this is probably the earliest text that you managed to get. And I, when I studied uh, sociology, I read... I think it was from 1975 something, another uh, text that was about specifically role-playing games, the first socio-text about role-playing games. And this is really late <laughs> for people to start researching play and, and game and what's going on in these fields. But I think it's because the whole concept of approaching games and leisure activity as something worthy of questioning of investigation is research research is really late 20th century sort of thing it's really new mm. so we are discovering new fields as we go i mean in video games this is a lot more advanced than it is in other fields and we'll maybe get to it later when we discuss it just a bit because video games even though they are younger than role-playing games both have mainstream appeal and huge companies behind them a that lot of would money. love to invest. Yeah, exactly. They would love money and want to invest a lot of money in finding ways to make interesting games the people we want. So they want to know why people like games. So that's probably um, not surprising. But in the role-playing game world, we are in a situation where we have, I think, at least 10 different models to work with, each totally different from the others or seems so close to one another that they, you ask yourself, aren't they the same model? I'll give a link to the, sh to, in the show notes to um, role-playing games theory in Wikipedia. You can just, just look at, at how many things there are there because there's so little research. So thank you very much for doing some research, Avner, <laughs> and providing us with some interesting answers. Just one more thing from the original uh, sociological text, which will come up later, so I will mention them. He also described an axis between what he called Pedia and Ludus. Pedia is a sort of free play where you enjoy the sheer exuberance of play. When kids run around uh, playing tag, most of the time they're not actually trying to catch each other, they're just enjoying the, the, the activity. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have Ludus, which is enjoyment of, of a game that has rules, 
of having rules and knowing the rules and winning by the rules. And he contrasts them one he with does. the other. He says he there are two different things and you can't have them both. Yeah. Which fit in very nicely with freeform role-playing games <laughs> and mechanic-heavy yes, role-playing exactly. games. Yes, exactly. So, apparently I was not the first person uh, to read uh, the sociological text and apply to role-playing games. Uh, because as I continued uh, looking, I found a fantastic site, which obviously had, you know, people had read Glenn Blackhove and read Robin D. Laws and read Kewa and have uh, sat down to see how they can merge all these together to have one unified concept of role play, why we play role-playing games. And that turned out to be the core of my lecture and the core of my uh, blog post and the core of the last time we did this uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, because these are uh, people from a group called Amagi Games. I don't know their games, but I did find a very interesting discussion Uh, It started out in several forums uh, about 10 years ago, uh, was refined there, and then was published as what they called the manifold model. If we mentioned the GNS model uh, earlier that talked about the threefold model, three ways to play a game, they said, no, no, this is the manifold model. We have many ways to get enjoyment from how we play, and we want to understand why. Uh, So this manifold model is... I think one of the most fascinating texts uh, of role-playing theory I've read, it really helped me uh, wrap my mind around a lot of the things I do in my gaming session. Uh, when I play, to understand why I play what, the way I play. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, I played a lot of Altmaika, and I really enjoy playing those minor characters in a scene. I mean, I like being the central character, but I really enjoy being a minor character, just, you know, have this comment once in a while in a scene that can shift the conversation one way or, or add a bit of humor the other. And other players don't like that. I've played with players who like to be the main character in the scene. They really don't enjoy being a secondary character. Well, I do. Because I feel that just like I, I like secondary characters when I read a novel or when I watch a TV show, a lot of times I really enjoy watching them, so I also enjoy playing them. And this model, this list of player motivations when approaching a role-playing game, really helped me understand my myself understand how i play and why i play now we'll go over the complete list of the many many different motivations that you as a player or as a gm might have when coming to the table Uh, we'll go over each and every one of them and avner will explain what's their deeper meaning and i would beseech any listener to maybe even take a pen and paper and mark down which of these are the one you really enjoy and which of these are the one you really don't care for. This could be a, an amazing exercise for yourself to understand what makes you tick as someone who's going to have a role-playing experience. Best of luck with that because people listen to us on the go and we'll never sit down with anything. Well, then maybe they will say, God, that was a good suggestion. I can't believe I haven't done that. I should definitely go home, rethink my ways, and then listen to this episode with pen and paper. So this list of 17 terms, of course, not exclusive. People naturally will have more than one motivation when they come to the gaming table. And of course, it's important to notice that this list isn't all-encompassing. And there will be many other motivations that people might come to to the table with and it's really interesting to find any more actually after the last time we recorded this in hebrew 
uh, Iran came up with two other motivations that I really think can be added to the list quite nicely. And we'll get oh, to them really? in the end. Okay, let us do it. Okay. The first of them, alphabetically speaking, is Agon or Agon. Uh, straight from the uh, old uh, sociological text, it means the enjoyment of winning against another person at the table. Specifically at the table. It's not about beating a challenge. It's not about having a, a difficult boss fight and uh, uh, you know using all your uh, daily powers and uh, winning. It's about being better than another person around the table. This seems to be, perhaps I think for many people, alien to the role-playing game experience where they think I, I'm, not, I'm not sitting down around the table to win against someone else. But there are role-playing games where this definitely happens. Uh, it happens yep. a bit in Paranoia, for example, where mm-hmm. many players compete against each other in-game. It happens in a game like Agon, <laughs> which is it's <laughs> another game, which is all about players fighting players. And they are very interesting games. This is also true about some aspects of Ars Magica, which I've never mentioned beforehand, in which there is oftentimes a lot of uh, competition between the different wizards around the table, depending on how you play the game. There are rules for dueling, especially for this. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's, but uh, as you said, it's not as common in tabletop role playing, unless this is what the game is about. Yes. It's very common in other forms of games, in board games, in video games, a very common element. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap between role-playing games and other forms of games. We're not you know, alone in the void. Personally, I am not a fan of Agon in role-playing games or in other forms of games. But I'm, you know, other people are. Yes, same. Next, again from the earlier list, is Alia. The gambler's thrill, it is described. It's the fun of taking a big risk, the tension that comes with it, and you know the, the, the release of that tension when the die is rolled and the 20 comes up or the 1 comes up and either you win or you don't. Uh, this is the form of motivation that drives people to gambling, that's true, but it's part of what people enjoy. This is, it adds tension that you won't get any other way in the game. And of course, some people don't enjoy it. Some people enjoy diceless role-playing games. Because this is not what they come to this game for. Or they might use games with dice, but not look forward to the role as something super important. Like, for example, if I'm a very tactical player, getting a 20 is excellent, because now I dealt more damage. But it happens 1 in 20 roles, and I'm aware of that. And I try to make sure that whatever action I take this turn, it will be relevant and useful even if I fail because statistically it will happen this and that. I'm not looking forward to the roll, to the luck. I'm not getting excited when I see the die. I just roll it because that's part of the rules that I use. And on the complete opposite, I occasionally would do things that has a much larger... A chance of being a a huge success or a huge failure rather than uh, go with the thing with the best chance of having a positive outcome because I like it when I have extreme success or extreme failure because that enhances the moment of the role. I should note that getting the success or the failure story-wise is a different motivation that we'll get to later. <laughs> Simply yeah. having the success because the die landed in something, that's the enjoyment of Alea. Yeah, so far we've 
talked about player motivations and what players enjoy, what we haven't talked about, and probably won't much, is how games can be designed to tap into one of these motivations or yes. more. And for instance, exploding dice is a mechanic yes. that really feeds into Alia. It, it makes you looking f- look forward to that six so you can roll another die. I was going to it in a, in a moment because that's probably one of the things that I really like in Savage Worlds. There's a lot of Elia. You, you have exploding dice and you have bennies that you can spend in order to re-roll the dice and you get dealt cards, which again, all of these are simple tiny moments where you have this... Uh-huh, when you, you lean forward and look forward to whatever is going to happen in a moment. Exactly. Okay, let's move on. We have a lot of motivation. The next is catharsis. Catharsis is a common term used in, in drama and theater. It's the feeling of relief that follows an intense or overwhelming experience. I think this might be what Uri just referred to a moment before, the excitement of having this big moment. It was because the die got this and that, but the moment itself is the catharsis, I think. No, no. Uh, I also enjoy catharsis a lot. Uh, I'm going to give a, a specific example from uh, two days ago. Uh, we started the session with me telling one of the other players, listen, dude, unlike the previous campaign, I'm not going to let you finish this one without any of us knowing anything about your character and its backstory. I demand that you tell us more about your character and about its backstory, and my character is going to ask about your character's backstory constantly. And we played the session, and at the end of that session, there was a boss fight, and in that boss fight, his character died. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was terrible. It was a terrible moment, you know... The guy's playing that character for months and she dies horribly. And I felt ecstatic because there was a catharsis to it. That that was um, a death worth dying because I will never know. I will never have the chance to ask that character about its background and what made it tick. And that was a cathartic moment for me because it was sort of an in-game experience which left me in a state of, you know, that tension of needing to get that information, which I will never get. I I was relieved, in a way. I think there's an important lesson here. Trying to get to the tiny, minute details of exactly what sort of action or experience in the game is what specific motivation by name isn't important. (laughs) It's not not that big of a deal. We we shouldn't probably do that. And we should let Avner go on. Governor, go! Another motivation, I accidentally skipped uh, the alphabetical order because it's not actually part of the original model. It was added in a later text, which but I liked, and I included it in the, my version of the model, called Asabia. This one's from Arabic, not from Greek or Latin, just for variety. And it means unity, or the enjoyment of working as a team towards a shared goal. Uh, the basis of all co- co-op games. Yes. While most of these motivations uh, aren't mutually exclusive, uh, Asabia and Agon kind of, you know, uh, contradict. You probably can't play a game when you have both of them at exactly the same moment. Yes. yes. Unless, you know, you have a you know, two against two game. Oh, okay, sure. The, the reason I like this motivation is because it took something that I didn't even think about. Yes. And, and made it explicit. Yes. It's a something that is 
I think many, many role players assume it as a part of any group of any game, and they should. It's, it's an important part of role-playing game. But I think that a lot of us, when we don't get it for some reason, feel like we missed something and we don't know what. Well, now I know. Now I know. I've missed the Sabia. I missed the part of where we acted as a group. When we had, you know, the archer shots and the face talked and everyone did their thing and we managed to achieve amazing feats of whatever and it was awesome and it was great and I had lots of fun. Now I know why. Yeah, and it could be a role-playing thing or a mechanical thing, but, you know, that feeling of, you know, we, we work together like a well-oiled machine. Uh, I think most people feel it in its lack when there's someone at the group keeping secret from the group. Mm-hmm. It's like the classic D&D moment of, uh, so, do you tell the rest of the party about X? No, I don't. And, like, everyone at the table are, <gasps> that son of a bitch, and now you know why. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, next motivation is closure. Closure is the satisfaction of having a story arc come to its conclusion. It's the feeling you get when you, know, you close a good book and you say, ah, that story ended well. Uh, and in role-playing games, stories tend to start the moment they end to, to, to interlap. So you can have lots of moments of closure uh, at the same time. I think there's a big difference between this and catharsis. Because I think catharsis is, as you've said before, it's the feeling of elation, of having a powerful moment, while closure is more dramatically satisfying construction that has ended. And by that I mean you need to have a story in order to have closure. Something should have happened, and then something happened, and now a third thing needs to happen. We all feel it. It's our dramatic, inner dramatic urges call for us to have this third thing happen. And when it happens, we get closure. Catharsis is the the release of an emotional tension. While closure is the the closing of a narrative tension. They can go together. Yes. It's that kind of story you're telling. Hopefully. But they don't have to. Yes. Next. Uh, up until now, it, it may look like we were going over a, a, a dictionary for a, a literature student, <laughs> but now we're going into things that are more gaming-oriented. Uh, expression. It is the enjoyment of being creative at the table. And again, this, the first time I read it, I said, like, you know, this, this, obviously, it's not, is it a motivation? And then I said, yes, because it's something that people enjoy and other people might not enjoy as much or enjoy differently. People come to the table and they describe what they're doing and they describe the scenery because you know a lot of game masters come with a lot of uh, 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 a lot of this motivation and we haven't mentioned it but you know a lot of these things apply to, to GMs as well as players. Oh yes, yes, yes. GMs are players as well. I think there's an inherent language flaw here because we say players when in the context of this episode we mean people who play the game we should say participants even probably yeah, yeah. Should we? and of course the the gm is one of the participants in that experience which is a role playing game exactly so expression is well when we play role playing games we are uh, engaging in a creative activity we're inventing things we're inventing a story we're inventing characters we're uh, we're being creative and 
some people, this is not what they're, they don't really care for that. They're, it's not what they come to the game for. For others, it's an, an, a creative outlet. This is what they're here to, uh, they draw the characters, they, they fill their mind, they go home and they write fan fiction for the characters in their role-playing game. Uh, if you see someone writing a, a 15-page backstory for their character, oh. you know that they might <laughs> they might come here for the expression. Well, just to make clear, I, for example, don't really like to express my character. When I play as a player character, when I'm a player, I, do, I don't think I really have this motivation. I do have it in loads as a, as a GM and for some different things, some various things. Like, for example, I really enjoy creating an enticing atmosphere by description. I want mm. p- people to feel something, the players. I want them to immerse themselves in something. And I want to be the one who makes them immersed. I want to be the person that, thanks to my participation in this experience, in this game, I made them feel as if they are in this market stall or whatever. Which is interesting because I think most people have different motivation when they're jamming and different motivation when they come to the table as players. Oh, yes. Uh, and also different as, you know, different systems might bring out different motivations from people. Different games, different tables. It's true. Okay, next. The next one is a motivation that is talked about a lot in video game development as well. It's called Fiero. I think this one's Italian, but don't, you know, hold me to it. <laughs> Fiero is a feeling of triumph, of, 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 of having a challenge and defeating it. Mm. Of, the challenge is usually, you know, in a video game, it's very clear. It's a hard game, and you beat the boss, and you beat the boss without dying. And, oh, this is the Fiero. This is what I'm talking about. This is the, 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 the feeling of, yeah, I'm the greatest. Woohoo! Now, this is what I think a lot of people sort of assume is a default in role-playing. A default. I think a lot of people come to the game and expect to have challenges and then overcome them and then feel a lot of fun from overcoming the challenges when actually that's, I've just, I basically just described D&D and Pathfinder, but a lot of other systems do a lot of other different stuff. And after I've learned this word Fiero from you, Avner, I finally realized what is probably the most important difference between Dungeon World and Powered by the Apocalypse games and D&D. And what is the biggest problem for D&D players who approach Dungeon World and say, wait, I just attacked this, but I don't feel satisfied from defeating it. There wasn't, there wasn't the whole thing of overcoming a challenge. Right. There's no challenge in Dungeon World. There's no challenge in Powder Apocalypse. You roll and the story continues in some way. You didn't overcome anything. And many GMs don't know how to run combats that don't have Fiero as the main goal. Yeah, that, you know, whether you roll high or roll low, the story continues, but, you know, either you hit or you miss, but it doesn't change the flow of the narrative. Yes. It just redirects it. I am also not a fan of Fiero. Oh, I love Fiero. I just want to make it clear. I enjoy it very much. I just think, you know, there's a place and, and, and a time for everything. Yes. Yeah, but you know, I, like Agon, I don't enjoy it in uh, video games. Uh, I usually mm. turn it down the difficulty level to the very lowest one. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of it in uh, role-playing games either, because 
you know, I like the the the, dram- the drama of a big combat, but not really the the challenge. I think it's really interesting how only in recent years you see in video games the option of playing on a difficulty that is called something like just the story or I'm just here for the experience or something like that. Because mm-hmm. before that, it was sort of an assumption, again, in video games as well, that you are here to be challenged. You are here because you want to win. Fear or to win. You, you want to win. And that's so no longer the case. And so many games are now aware of it, but maybe only like last 10 years or something like that. Yeah, and uh, personally, I'm very glad that the industry has moved there because I enjoy it. Yes, yes, it's, it's a very good thing. It's also a very good indication of whether this game has an interesting world slash character, etc. I remember Mass Effect having the option of story, story mode mm. in which all... I, I think that's when me and Avner started talking about that uh, as he was playing Mass Effect on, on, on story mode. And... I thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it has an amazing story and world and narrative and characters. And other games, I don't know, Doom or Duke Nukem, you will not play on story mode because then you will start playing and get, you know, the ending credits. I don't think they even have story mode exactly because of this. That's not why you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, D&D is very fear-oriented or Pathfinder, which is true. But... The problem with, uh, with that is that D&D is, for many people, you know, what role-playing is. Yes. You know, we're deep in the industry, so we know all sorts of games, and we know, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you don't want Fiero, you can play Dungeon World. But for many people, D&D is the game they came into the hobby with and still play. And a lot of people come to play D&D, and they don't want Fiero. They don't even know that they don't want Fiero. And this is exactly the sort of mismatch around the table that leads to people not having enough fun. Completely agree. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, people will now listen to this episode, share it with their friends, point at this time in the episode and tell them, here, listen to this, and see, there are various tons of things. We can maybe change the game, maybe tune it a little while, and we'll get to how to use this list after we finish with it. Yes. Next. Humor. <laughs> yes. Does humor belong in gaming? Absolutely. Well, if it's the sort of game where it fits. I'm not talking about humorous games, about, yeah, this game is humorous, it's paranoia, it's it's whatever. It's people who like to laugh and like to make other people laugh, and they do it in their regular life, and they do it around the table because this is what they enjoy. It's, It's your motivation. One of the reasons you come to play is because you want to have some humor in the game. And And again, this is a classic case for conflict. You know, we're a group of uh, friends, and we used to play D&D, and, you know, lots of laughs and fun. And now one of the uh, players is pushing to play a serious uh, vampire the masquerade game. But suddenly they discover that some people don't enjoy a game that doesn't have humor. Yes. They, 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 and, if they're, and, and other people, they want a serious uh, emotional uh, game about, you know, dramatic vampires, and the humor ruins it for them. It takes a while to understand that these are different motivations that might conflict around the table. Yep, 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 yep. Next, we're coming back to the Latin word. No, sorry, Greek. <laughs> kairosis. A kairosis is very similar to closure, as we mentioned earlier, but this is the, the feeling of fulfillment when a character's story arc completes. That sounds kind of specific. It's kind of specific, but I think this is one of the interesting ones because it's, it's unique, I think, to a role-playing game rather than other uh, forms of media. When 
you watch a TV show, there might be a character you, you particularly like and you're invested in their character story arc, which is sort of like this. I don't really care about the main story. I like, I want to see how this character works out. I want to see how this character develops. The in a role-playing journey. game, this is my character. This is, I, I, my investment, my emotional investment is even bigger. So this is not just a general closure about, you know, uh, the story has come to an end. Everyone's happy. We killed the, the evil duke and saved the land. This is my character, my main input into the game, and having their, their main story arc progress and the satisfaction that it brings me. I definitely had this when I played Wrath of the Righteous. It's a Pathfinder adventure uh, path a few years back. And I had a character, Zamrofia, who is a paladin. And I had a character arc for her. And I really enjoyed playing the character art for its sake. I just liked having Zamrofia go through this and have her own journey and become this evil paladin and then seek redemption all of this shit, it was awesome. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next one, also Greek, Kenosis. Kenosis is the satisfaction for being deeply engaged and attached to your character. It seems very similar to what we just said, but again, like we had Catharsis, which is the emotional uh, release, while Closure is the narrative release, this is similar. Uh, Kairosis is enjoying the narrative of your character's story arc. Kenosis is the enjoyment of playing your character, of feeling, acting out your character, uh, having your character's emotions bleed into you, and, and you know the, the emotional aspect of playing a character, of being a character in a role-playing game. But this is super interesting because I don't have this for Zemlofia. <laughs> I don't enjoy playing as her. I really want mine just speaking in third person about her all the time. I just gain no enjoyment from experiencing her and sympathizing with her. I just want to see her story arc. You mentioned a couple of episodes ago uh, when you were talking about uh, speaking in the first or third person of your character. Yes. And this is a very this is this is what kenosis is about. People who enjoy kenosis will probably play more uh, speaking the first person about their their character because they enjoy getting into their character. Very interesting. Next, another motivation that sounds really, really sounds like the previous one, kinesis, not kenosis, kinesis. It's, you know, like kinetic, something that moves. It's enjoyment of moving things, of having miniatures around on the table, on the map, having a map, having something, you know, having a game book that you flip through to look for the rules. Actual physical stuff that you get to touch and move and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, and again, when I read this originally, I said, you know, okay, now you're just saying things. But, you know, because it doesn't feel like an important thing, like, you know, plot or characters or, <laughs> or, or things like that. But you can't ignore the fact that this is part of our hobby. This is part of what we do. We, we, we deal with miniatures not only because they give us a sense of tactical uh, uh, overview of the combat. I mean, people like messing around with their miniatures. People like building towers out of their dice. I just enjoy having dice and rolling dice and yes. placing them around and having a character sheet. And yeah, sure. Yeah, and, you know, scribbling in the, in the corner of your character sheet because, you know, it's your character sheet and you can do whatever you want on it uh, is a motivation. I would say if there's someone who's thinking, nah, that's not a motivation, simply go to your gaming group and tell them, okay, we're not doing miniature anymore. We're going and we're going to play with tokens. <laughs> and, and just see if there's a discussion 
or a full-scale battle <laughs> starting at that moment. No, th- there can be groups when it's not really important because, again, motivations, people have different motivations. But I can say that as a person that thought that this is not really important to me, when moving to Roll20 or other virtual tabletops, I feel something missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's, and I'm not only talking about the fact that uh, pe- other people are not present and I need to now talk to them using microphone stuff. I mean the fact that there's no table, no things to me to move, no character sheet for me to hold. And I had to find a replacement because I need this. I want this. And I found it in the way of just having a lot of interesting, cool stuff on the screen that I can move and using the maps and using tokens and rolling a 3D die because I want to see them. I want to see them roll. I want to watch them roll on my screen. I discovered that if I am in a Roll20 session and the sound of the dice rolling is muted, I I would freak out. <laughs> that I, 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 that's, that's, that's not natural. In my Earth uh, Minecraft group, uh, we use usually play on couches. We don't sit around the gaming table uh, when we play. We would, you know, spread around on the couches and, and move around a bit. And that, that's the, the, our main dynamic. Whereas in the Fate Accelerated game I play with Uri, uh, we, we always sit around the table. And the two games are not... I would say that it's not because, you know, in the uh, Fate Accelerated game we need more dice and more character sheets and be aware of them. No, the Alphanker game was probably more mechanically uh, complicated. We rolled more dice and we needed the rule books more. But we were players that approached it differently. We we we, used, we had different physical environments for our games, and it affected. I think it's 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 about the kinesis. It's about what we we, we want to uh, interact with during the game. So the dice were there. We would roll it, but rest of the time they were just lying there because no one really cared to play with them. Next, Ludus. So I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the, the Ludus Paidia divide, the game, the structured versus unstructured play. And Ludus is the motivation for people who enjoy the rules. Yes. They enjoy knowing the rules. They enjoy using playing, the rules. For using the rules. They enjoy uh, overcoming challenges by using rules. They enjoy in, uh, finding loopholes in the rules or using the rules to their best advantage. They like the, the, the mechanical aspect of the game. Now, it's important to distinguish, again, this doesn't mean that you are a rule lawyer. It just means you enjoy having the rules and using them. And my wife is an excellent example. She loves rules, but not all the rules and not all the time. She would play the hackeriest hacker you can imagine in Shadowrun because, because it has such deliberate and focused and specialized rules. And she wants to go through all of them and read all of it and make the best hacker <laughs> she can. And good for her. But she's not as interested in other parts of the rules, even off Shadow One, because that's not her thing. So it's important to note that if you have or don't have a motivation, it's not a yes or no thing. It's not rule lawyer or freeform. It's a ladder or something. In our Earth Manca game, we played, I think, on and off for about 18 years through three editions. And there are there were people who played for in the game for, I think, almost 10 years and could still could not uh, calculate their lab research total to save their life because it never interested them. 
and there were other players in the game who knew other people's lab research tools for them <laughs> because they enjoyed calculating it for them. So it was a great uh, synergy. I don't, I don't know what my uh, lab total is. You ask that, that guy. He knows. He knows your lab. He knows exactly where things are in your lab and what's your score in this and what's your score in that. And more importantly, our main point is it's not that he knows. He enjoys knowing. Yes. That's part of the enjoyment. Because exactly. I've known games in which you know one player would learn the rules of another player's character to help him out or to speed up things, etc. But, you know, he did this to help, not because he enjoyed it. And one of our main points here is that some people know all the rules or or, or a subset of all the rules because they like that. Yes. That's part of the main reason they're playing. This is their fun. Uh, people who optimize who build a, 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 a optimized build of characters, you know, from level 1 to 20 uh, in D&D, that, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll take this feat, and it will feed into that feat, so it's level 15, when I take the, the, the it will feed into that, and we'll have an unstoppable juggernaut at level 20. And they do it not because they want an unstoppable juggernaut to play. This is not uh, uh, about, you know, the, the power of the character. It's about managing to build an unstoppable juggernaut using the tools that the, the, the rules give me. Next. Uh, the next motivation, I have to say, up until now, all the motivations were either ones I shared or ones I didn't share but understood. This was the first one that I took me a while to even understand what it meant. And I think it was uh, you guys in the previous version of this episode that really made me understand it. It's called Naches. Yes. This one's from Yiddish. Naches. Naches. The enjoyment of seeing someone that you have taught or you're responsible for go on to do well, to do great things. This is, again, it doesn't sound like it has any room around the gaming table, but it so totally does. And I yep. can say so from, and Uri, of course, can say so. We love teaching the game and seeing other people enjoying it more. And this is why, this is why we do the podcast for Naches. Uri and I just have this huge motivation. Exactly. I, I know uh, Uri always uh, loves running games to new players. When people that uh, have heard about the hobby and are uh, interested in the hobby say, is there anyone that can help us get into it? And you know, Uri's there. Yes. <laughs> Uri's there. And he, he will pull them kicking and screaming into the hobby because he enjoys bringing people into the fold. And this is exactly the sort of motivation. Also, on occasion, it would bleed in into the game. And my... Previous, previous character, best level skill from the Magnima level skill, you might have heard, you might have heard of them. Uh, he had the leadership feat, and he had other NPCs which he looked after. Mm. And if those NPCs would gain levels and experience, etc., that would make me very happy, even though it's, you know, totally virtual, etc. So this, this might not, well, usually be a, a motivation to come to the table, but it is a motivation to come to the hobby. This is yes. the hobby is not just what we do around the table. If we talked earlier about the kinesis, people enjoy well, they used to enjoy don't do it much uh, painting their own miniatures, and this is part of the game. Even if it's not something they do around the gaming table, they still enjoy the the, the messing around and painting their own miniatures. So this is enjoying people bringing people to the hobby and you know having a podcast to talk to people about it. Hmm. Next. Uh, we talked earlier about Ludus, and now the, the other end of the Ludus spectrum is Paida. 
Freewheeling Player Fun. The fun of the experience. Just, you know, seeing around, you have it a lot in LARPs, for instance. I think uh, it's very strong in LARPs where you don't necessarily enjoy uh, uh, the rules of the game, but you do enjoy the very experience of going around in character, talking to people in character. This is a, a sort of freeform fun that LARPs really give. It's, uh, I would say it's a more of a, an unstructured experience, unburdened by rules. A lot of people who like uh, their role-playing to be freeform, who like their uh, role-playing to just flow, talk to people, something happened, something else happened, you respond, you react, you don't structure it with combat rounds and, you know, uh, feats and what they can do. It's sort of like uh, maybe feeds into improv in one aspect. It's the unstructured part of, uh, of the game. If it sounds like I'm a bit hesitant, it's because... It's a definition that I feel is a bit defined by what it isn't and not by what it is. It's really about not liking rules more than about liking something. So maybe concrete. if we try to make it a positive definition, I would say it's the ability to act in whichever which way you want without the, some sort of a constraint being placed upon your range of possibilities. That's a very good definition. I remember back in the late 80s when I first heard about Dungeons and Dragons and I tried to understand what this game is and why it's different because it felt like it's something big and new and different than everything I knew. And I remember reading somewhere that, you know, you go into a house, your character goes into a house, okay, okay, I go into a house and there are stairs. You want to go up them? Sure. And, you know, do you want to go, your character to go up the stairs doing a handstand, you know, walking on their hands? And I said, wow, I, I can just do that. I don't need a game that's built for walking on your hands up the stairs. I can just do whatever it is I want. And this is a sort of freedom uh, that I think is the Paida motivation. It's a sort of freedom that role-playing games give us and many other games don't. I, I used to call it the peony's head test because I, I had an argument with a friend about a computer game versus role-playing game, and he said, yeah, but that has all the possibility of the story is really vast, and you have so many options. And I said, okay, so what scene are you playing now? And he said, I'm in this cavern, and I'm talking with the orc chieftain, and I'm trying to convince him to whatever. And I said, okay, can you stand up on the table and pee on his head? And he said, no, of course not. And I said, that's what I would do in my game. And if you can't do that in your game, then I don't want to play your game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, was, I was very young, mind you. I can't top the pee on his head test, so let's move on. <laughs> the next one is in German, because we haven't had German yet. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is the enjoyment of seeing other people fall. <laughs> uh, again, it's a, it's a narrative thing. It's it's about seeing the villain get their comeuppance. It's, it's about beating the enemy, not because it was a challenge, but because he's, he's been an annoying character and he's been a thorn at your side all game and you want to see him die. Uh, in an old D&D game that Uri uh, ran for me many years ago, we had this recurring villain behind the scenes. It took a couple of years of game time to even understand he was behind the scenes. Uh, GD, I believe he was. It's the only GD. initial... We only knew his initials. Yep. Uh, I joined rather late in the game, but every, by the time I joined, everyone 
would 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 just you know start flexing their their their, their fists every time his name was mentioned because every years of plans foiled by this annoying NPC. This became a goal for most of the players to see him fall by the time the campaign ended. Ah, good times. <laughs> the next one is, and it's an important one, sociability. Earlier I mentioned the, the, the seven types of gamers that Robin D. Laws categorized, and he talked about the casual gamer. And I have to say that his uh, description is a bit... Um, Condescending? Condescending is exactly the word I would use. Mm. It's like, you know, he's not a real gamer. You know, he's just yes. a guy that comes around because his friends are playing. And, well, you know, he wrote it in a time where there was such a thing in, you know, in the culture of a real gamer and someone who is a casual gamer, who is not yeah. really into it. And today we can say that there's no such thing as wrong, bad fun and enjoy it however you want to enjoy it. And sociability... Why is it so important then? It's important because this is the reason why we play games with friends and not, you know, just sit around doing things at home. It's because role-playing games are a social game. Uh, we enjoy the company of others. I probably would not want to play with someone I don't like. I can't think of myself role-playing in a group with someone I, I actively dislike. Because... Why, why, like, why would I go out drinking with this guy? I don't like him. Why would I go out, you know, to to do something else with him? I don't like him. I wouldn't play with him either. No, it's not a technical thing. I come, I role play, I go home. I don't have to interact with him. I, I play with the player as well as with the character. So it's important for uh, the social aspect is is integral part of the role playing game. For me, I clearly see it as a motivation because there are games that I'm currently playing in where. The main reason the game exists is because I want to still be friends with some people. And this is an activity that allows me to be sociable with them, to interact with them, to have some fun with them. I had friends that, you know, uh, even though they were friends and I enjoyed their company, I knew that once the game ended, I will probably not keep in touch with them. Mm. Unfortunately, because I like them, but I knew that our lives will not be able to properly mesh if we didn't have the game as the social glue here. Yeah, yeah, which is why this is an important motivation. Very much so. I remember a, a great GM who once ran me a game, and she wouldn't accept a, a specific player for our group, even though I recommended him. And I asked her, why? And she said, listen, in most cases, my gaming group become a large part of my social life. And if someone is not someone I want to have in my social life, I will not be playing with them. And it mm. took me a long while to understand the wisdom of that. And the last one is simply venting. We mentioned it earlier about the butt kicker, but this is a great motivation uh, for role-playing games as well as other form of games, as well as sports, as well as a lot of things you do in your life. Sometimes you just want to work out your frustrations, you have emotions, and you just want to, to, to have something to channel them into. And a role-playing game can be a great way. It can be the butt-kicker we mentioned earlier. You know, you have fight, you kill things, things die, you, you have fun. It can be venting through, because you have a character you can vent your emotions through, because you, can't do, you don't have the people to do it personally. Venting is a great motivation and great way to do to have role-playing games be a, a productive and constructive part of your life. I think that's all of them. 
Ah, but not, not true. You said there are two more that I added. That is true. Uh, in a discussion a couple of, uh, a few years ago when we recorded the original episode, Iran had two others that he thought of. And one is control. The, way, the, 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 the desire to feel like you have control over things. Uh, when you role play, you have control over your environment, your character, your whatever that you might not have in other places. And it's a great motivation because it, it's something that you miss or something that you enjoy that you might not get in other places. I, I would argue as much as I think I argued beforehand is that if you're not the actual game master, the GM, your main motivation here is not control rather than agency. Yes. You want to feel term. that you have the ability to influence things. To affect change. You're right. Uh, agency is a great, much better uh, uh, term here. Uh, and the other one, which I will uh, tentatively call uh, the Pokemon, <laughs> is the incentive to collect them all. To amass wealth, to amass power, to amass whatever. To have just one more thing. To get all the... the uh, in a video game, it might be to, to, to get all the achievements that the game allows you to collect. Uh, and in a role-playing game, it might be expressed differently, but still, it's a, it's a, it's a motivation that can certainly be expressed uh, in mechanics and around the table. You want to catch them all. I think I agree with myself, yes. <laughs> I wouldn't agree with you so quickly, Iran. <laughs> you... Excellent. But now that we know all of these motivations... And of course, there might be others. You might have be able to, to find others like Iran did. Oh, yes. Uh, if you guys think of any new motivations, please do have a conversation with us on our Facebook group uh, on the Shadow of Dwarves. Um, we might help you define these motivations, these thoughts that you have. We might find that they already sort of maybe matches one of these motivations we've discussed, or maybe you will discover something new, whatever. It, it can be an interesting discussion. That's how we had it last time. Uh, do go ahead and do it. But here's maybe the biggest question. What do we do with these motivations? How do we actually use them when we want to make our games better? My initial thought was to have maybe a, a sort of questionnaire you have a questionnaire, you give it to your players, uh, 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 you work out some sort of motivation character sheet of a player, not a, not a character. Mm. And then uh, when people come to the table, you can, you can match. You can say, okay, I'm looking for players that you know, like uh, uh, humor, uh, don't like too much ludus, and uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, uh, uh, hate agon. When I talked to people, when I gave the, the talk, I actually uh, gave out a small survey, and I wanted everyone to mark for each of these motivations, whether it's important to him, not important, or important not to have. Uh, which I thought might be nice to have, uh, either just to have the raw information, or just as a, a basis for, for, for a tool. Mm -hmm. And actually what I ended up uh, thinking is that it's not necessarily effective enough. I mean, I, I had a guy saying, yeah, I have... Uh, two uh, regular games. One is a vampire game uh, in which I really care about uh, catharsis and uh, uh, kairosis and kenosis. And another is a paranoia game where I actually absolutely don't care about any of these things. 
and I care about humor, and I care about, uh, uh, I don't know, agon, and I care about other things. So the problem is these things are a bit too flexible. I can't, I mean, yeah, as I said, I don't like agon, but I might be convinced to like a good agon game because it doesn't come at the expense of other things. It doesn't, it has characters fighting each other, but I don't feel like it bleeds over to me as a player. Uh, I might not enjoy uh, Ludus, but there might be games where the mechanics are simple and straightforward and, and, and sharply defined, and I really enjoy them. So I don't know if I can absolutely say that, you know, I'm a XYZ player, give me XYZ games. But it is a very good tool for you as a player to understand, okay, this game is fun for me because I enjoy A, B, and C, and this game delivers them to me. Or, which I found to be the case for me, when there's something troubling me in a game, mm. I can understand why I'm suddenly not enjoying the game as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asabia for me, is is an amazing example because a lot of time... I enjoy Asabia tremendously. If I'm part of a group and we're all working together to solve something, even if my character hasn't done anything, and I played the bard for three years, I usually I wouldn't do anything. <laughs> but still, if we as a group would overcome an obstacle, I would be ecstatic. And on the other hand, if someone decided to do something outside of the group and do his own thing, that game would be a lot less fun for me. Even if in that same instance, I my character would do something very, very much uh, helpful, I still wouldn't enjoy it as much. Yeah. And now I can say, okay, that's what's troubling me. That is that aspect which I'm now lacking, and that is why I'm not enjoying the game as much. In one of your last episodes, you spoke about not session zero, but you know before session zero, how to yes. find the right players for your game. And what you just said, Uri, is... Uh, how these can be very good tools for an ongoing game or after a couple of sessions to see, to synchronize your expectations. It might be a bit premature to say I only like players who like, uh, uh, I don't know, Agon, and you might miss out on players that don't know if they like Agon in this particular context. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great introspection tool, not necessarily a great filtering tool. Exactly, exactly. Because just like you said, your own motivations might change. You might be convinced that some motivations can be retested or, you know, maybe check them again with the system that does this thing differently. I really like paranoia and how it does Egon, but I don't like Egon in any other way that I've ever encountered. It really depends on so many things. Yeah, uh, for instance, uh, Asmaika has detailed rules for magic, and not everyone cares about them, but you might be in a group that will take care of it for you, and it's fine. And even though <laughs> yes. you don't like Ludus, you might enjoy the game tremendously because this aspect, while it is important to the Game Master, it's important to the other players, can be skipped over for you. You can outsource it to other people and enjoy the game and be a productive part of the game, even though... If you would have said, no, no, it, this is a mechanical uh, heavy game, I won't even approach it. Yes, exactly. Which would be a shame. I think it's really useful also for us, even on a per session basis, to just look at this experience that I'm going to have, this session that is upcoming, and ask myself what kind of motivations I'm looking forward 
today and maybe how I can maybe try to accomplish them. Because today I just want to roll some dice and defeat some monsters. I had a long day at work. I don't really care about everything else right now. We're in a part of the story that isn't as interesting to me. Or maybe it is interesting, but I don't. Uh, too many drama and I just want to kill a goblin or two. And maybe I can have a talk with the GM before we start and say, just, just explain myself. If if you you and the GM, of course, know each other well enough, the GM will get it in a moment just by looking at you and how you behave. We all telegraph our wants very well, even if we don't really know them ourselves a lot of the time. And I think that the main thing for me was with this whole thing is the switch in my head between categorization and motivation. Because before that, I tried to decide what I am. Am I this kind of gamer? Am I this kind of thing? And then I thought, after your explanation, well, what are more motivations? Do I like this thing? Do I like this thing? But just just categorization in different words. It's really best to just look at the motivations, things to consider, and like you said, to introspect, to use when you think about, not as definitions or self-definitions in any way. They're not what I am. They're just things I like. Yes. In the context of usually a specific game with specific people. Because a lot of times someone would join in the game, would change the flavoring of the game, and you might think, oh, uh, this is a new and interesting um, direction. Why not go with it? Yeah. You might not care about, you know, uh, 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 the story arc until the story arc becomes closer to you and suddenly you care about it. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Excellent. Is there anything else we want to add? Well, actually, I have two things I want to add. (laughs) Just two links for people that want to maybe read more about things around this topic. First is Quantic Foundry. Quantic Foundry are a research group um, working with mostly video games, but also board games, about this topic of player motivations. They don't yet have role-playing game motivations, but you should really definitely go there and do their questionnaires and see what kind of motivations you have as a board gamer and as a video gamer, and they give recommendation and explain themselves. The, The questionnaires are really interesting. You should really go through it, and the results will, again, not tell you who you are, but what sort of things you, generally speaking, enjoy. And maybe you can take some of that into your role-playing game as well. I've tried using that questionnaire first for real, and then I tried to use it for a role-playing game. Obviously, it didn't translate quite as well, but still a very, very interesting tool to look at, to get introspection about yourself. The second thing I want to recommend is called The Righteous Mind. It's a book about social psychology by Jonathan Hated and or Hade. I don't know how to pronounce this name. And it's about morality and how morality is sort of, well, that's a theory he suggests, these six topics on each of which you have two poles and every person give different priorities to each of the topics and places themselves on different places on the poles. And that's actually what morality is all about. And that's why one person will think that this thing is really bad and that thing is really good. And another person will not even understand why the first person think that this topic has anything to do with morality at all. That's 
very much, I think, on the same vein as what we were talking about here. And so go ahead and read it. What about you, Uri? How would you summarize this? Well, I have the big advantage of looking and hearing this list for the fourth or fifth time. We did an episode about that. Avner did a lecture. I read this in his blog years ago. And I've, you know, processed this for a long time, both in my role-playing games and as an improviser in a group. And it's amazing how finely tuned you get when you use this list. How you can say, wow, I've noticed this player really enjoyed this aspect. Let me test this by using that aspect again. And oh my God, he, he's, um, he just fell for it again. And once you think, okay, now I understand what makes my players tick. And I can use this to enhance their gaming experience. And then my next big leap was as a player seeing, okay, this fellow player is really enjoying that specific. He really enjoy Aegon. He really enjoy that sense of victory. So me, as a bard or a swashbuckler or warlord or whatever, can enhance that specific aspect of the game for him. If I would talk about how our opponents seem really, really strong, uh, what I'm actually doing is enhancing the fiero that other players will get. So it's a very useful tool for understanding other people, understanding what they enjoy, and eventually using it to enhance their experience. Excellent. Avner, any last words? I think the, uh, going over this list originally really helped me uh, you know, not feel bad about things that I enjoyed. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not playing it wrong, just playing it that way. It's because, you know, I, I remember a specific session where I, I didn't do anything in a, for a whole scene except have a small comment that made other people laugh. And I felt that was a good scene. And yeah, now I can say why. Okay, why don't we go on to the next part of our episode, which is taking the load off. This is the part of the show in which we talk a bit about role-playing games in our lives. So basically like whatever we just did before, but on a personal basis. Uri, what have you been role-playing this week? Well, two days ago, I had an amazing Pathfinder session. It was awesome because I went very focused, even though I was tired, and we played. And I said to this player, listen, you're doing amazing, and you're awesome. And you, I'm not going to let you get away without telling us the whole backstory of your character. And that player looked at me and he said, you know what? You're right. I'm going to share and I'm going to tell you my backstory and we're going to make this campaign awesome. And then we went to a boss fight and then we went to a bigger boss fight and then his character died horrifically. (laughs) And I have to say, the minute his character died, I was so happy. Because from a narrative perspective, it was such a fitting end. It was a cathartic moment to <laughs> One would build say. upon what what we've been talking in this episode. And, and, you know, there was a discussion around the table. Should we pool our resources and find a cleric and maybe raise dead or resurrect that character? And we all agreed, of course, that it's, it's the player's choice 
whether he wants to continue playing that character or not. And I was like, I was just sitting there and thinking, God, no. If you have to die, you should die in a huge boss battle a second after you practically killed the big villain. And, and, and this, a second after you said something like, yeah, I'm retiring next week. Yes, and exactly. just <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was such an epic moment and, and going back on it would hugely diminish my enjoyment mm. of the game. But I haven't said anything because <laughs> it's not my character and it's just, not just my enjoyment. Uh, so it, it was a, a great and wonderful moment. It was a story arc and a character arc that you enjoyed the completion of. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Uh, I haven't played this week, unfortunately, uh, at all. But instead, I really worked hard on a new professional website for myself because it's apparently time Which I looks have one. awesome. Thank you, thank you. I'm not really sure it, it works. I'm not sure it's professional enough that, like, when you read it, you say, ah, yes, I would like to hire this person to do this and that and that. I, it might be a bit uh, confusing, but you can be the judge, eranoviram.me. And there's, of course, link in the show notes. And I also posted a review on the Mistborn Adventure game. Now, it's a really long review because apparently I don't remember how to do them shorter. But Iran, what? Iran, a review is never long. <laughs> uh, it, it is thorough. Okay? <laughs> exactly. So, it's an excellent game. It's a really good game, the Mistborn Adventure game, and I explain why in the review. But just to, to summarize... If you enjoy role-playing games in general and are curious to see what sort of interesting things can be done with them, what tools, mechanical tools, can, can we use in our games, you should probably check it out. That's about it. Avner. Uh, unfortunately, I do not have any uh, uh, role-playing tales from this past week because my current uh, game with Ori has uh, been on hiatus since we both had uh, children this past <sighs> year and a bit. So I will, uh, you know, listen to you and your role-playing stories and, you know, miss it, miss it. Then how <laughs> about you plug yourself and tell us where we can find you on the internet? I will plug myself. Uh, I am uh, usually on Twitter. My uh, Twitter alias is very hard to pronounce uh, uh, <laughs> out loud, but it will be in the show notes. It is Lizardgy. L-I-S-A-R-D-G-G-Y. No, it is not supposed to be pronounceable. Uh, I have a blog. Uh, the link will also be in the show notes. It's mostly in Hebrew. Uh, my Twitter is also mostly in Hebrew, but I respond in English and uh, will gladly talk about role-playing or whatever. I urge all of you to tweet at Avner. He has amazing insights and he responds unlike many people on Twitter. Also, you can, of course, engage with him on our Facebook group where he occasionally visits and says some things. I do. I do. If you want to engage with us in any other ways, well, you can do so because we have an email address and it's show at dwarfcast.net. And also we exist on Twitter and Facebook at Dwarf Podcast. And our website is dwarfcast.net. And that's it. That's, that's basically it. There's no, 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 no more ends except for our Patreon page, because if you enjoy us and you think that this is really awesome and you say, wow, these guys, they provide so much interesting and cool things for free, we say yes, and we'll keep it for free. But if you want to show your appreciation in a monetary fashion and also help us improve 
this podcast, our equipment, and allow us to buy a lot more PDFs to read, <laughs> then you can definitely do so on our Patreon page. Which is patreon.com slash dwarfcast. And that's it. Thank you very much, Avner, for uh, coming you. and guesting and talking. And again, once more, for the 14th gazillionth time, going through the whole list of all motivations and being enthusiastic about it, because I really think this can be really helpful. It has been for me, and I'm glad to have the chance to talk. So, on the count of three, we will all bid goodbye to our listeners, each in his own native tongue. One, two, three. On the shoulder of dwarves is shared under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Form. The intro and outro are taken from Silly Fun by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3. Find us at dwarfcast.net and follow us on Twitter or Facebook.